I, I made the phrase, said the phrase to you earlier about the study we're in on the book of Revelation. And I, I know this is kind of weird for me to get a little quick uh, hand count, but how many of you, and this is going to be just, just, it's okay to tell on yourself, how many of you have never actually read, and it's okay, the book of Revelation, you've been a little bit skittish, you've heard about it, but you've never actually read it. Just raise your hand real quick. And it's okay. That's a judgment-free zone. All right. You've never actually read it. That's, that's fine. Just want you to know you're, you're in good company. Okay. Um, there's a reason we're doing this study. But I wanted to also give some, some expectations right up front. All right. Now, eschatology, let me go and give you the term that when I say that word uh, throughout the series, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. It's a study of end times. The belief concerning death and the end of the world and the ultimate destination of humankind. Specifically, any of various Christian doctrines concerning with the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, or the last judgment. All right? Eschatology is an extraordinarily large, very in-depth study of the end times of which Revelation is a part of. Okay? A part of. Revelation in and of itself is not like eschatology. It's not the only thing you would go look at if you want to study and, and have a better study of the end times. As I'll share with you a little bit today, there's so much in scripture about the second coming of Christ, and it's amazing. But you, you have to kind of know up front, we're, we're actually just looking <laughs> at Revelation, and we will sometimes mention and talk about how Revelation kind of ties into eschatology. Say that word out loud, everybody. Eschatology. Eschatology. We'll talk about how it applies to it, but I just want to set up expectations. We're not covering, I mean, there's no, it takes two years to go through 101. Dan's got 101, right? Eschatology 101. Two years. So I'm just letting you know, like, it, it, you just have the right expectations. We're looking at the book of Revelation. I'll talk about how it plays into the big picture, but I want to make sure you know, like, kind of where, where we're going and what we're, what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. Does everybody nod your head if you're with me? Yeah? Okay. Well, the, regardless of whether we go too deep or not, the second coming of Christ was a big deal to the church, okay? And when I say it was a big deal to the church, I'm talking about the very first unnamed, okay, congregations that were followers of the disciples, that were followers of the way, the early, early church, had the second coming of Christ on their mind. They really did. Matter of fact, they had a great phrase that they would actually greet each other sometimes with or say in a greeting or kind of a mantra, and it was our word. We would say the word Maranatha. Everybody say the word Maranatha. Maranatha, right? This phrase would often be used because it meant come Lord, and it kind of had this understanding of like our Lord is coming, right? Maranatha, Lynn, yeah, yeah, our Lord is coming, right? And we would say it with an expectation, right? We'd say Maranatha with an expectation. The early church would be like Maranatha, you know? The Lord is coming. Why? Because Jesus had left them and said, I'm coming back. Now, I believe some of them misunderstood the timing of that a little bit. They, they, it was kind of like Jesus said, hold on, I got to clean up for a second. Wasn't expecting company. You guys with me? Like that's, that's how some of them were kind of viewing it. But then you also have to understand that persecution of Christians, persecution of the church was only going to get worse. Matter of fact, some of the height of the persecution of the church was uh, during Nero, which was about 58 to 62, I think, ish, AD. Nero was just, I mean, the persecution was ridiculous. And so 
Some of them were saying Maranatha because they were under such heavy persecution. Eleven of the twelve disciples would be martyred. Many Christians would die for their faith and their following of Jesus. And so when they would greet each other and say Maranatha, there was a hopeful expectation that Jesus is coming. Jesus is returning. Our Lord is coming. But again, because there were Christians dying, whether, whether it be persecution or just old age at that point, you know, they had, they had been a part of Jesus. They were maybe some of the older people around when Jesus came, and they were dying of natural causes. And, and churches and families were, were a little discouraged because they didn't quite understand how all this was going to work because Jesus didn't come right back. And so they're talking to Paul, and they're asking questions, and they're talking to their church leaders, and they want to know what's going on. Like, like are they going to miss out? Like, they already died. And again, they had a lot of Jewish customs and things, and maybe some of them were, 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 um, were outside of the Jewish faith originally, so they, did, they had different customs as to what death meant. And they were a little bit worried, like, it's, ah, oh, they're going to miss out. And so here's what Paul said to the early church. I just love the fact that Paul feels like he needs to address it to encourage the church. Here's, this is in Thessalonica. This is to the church. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to believers, to the believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope, right? You've probably heard this even at funerals today. Followers of Christ don't grieve the same way that people who have no hope. He goes on to say, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we will also believe that when, Christ, when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him believers who have died. Keep going. We tell you this directly from the Lord, right? We tell you this directly, like this is what Jesus said. When we who are still living, when the Lord returns, are not, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. He actually goes on to say, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And first the believers who have died will rise from their graves. And then he goes on to say, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain in the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. Again, Maranatha, right? And, and so I love he ends this by saying, look, let's encourage each other with these words. Like, let's, let's not be frustrated. I know Jesus doesn't come back yet. Let's not be frustrated. Let's not be angry. Let's not, let's be, let's be hope-filled. Let's be excited. Because Maranatha, Jesus is coming again. He's coming. Come, Lord, come. But he said, I want you to know how it's going to work. As things, years were progressing and as things were beginning to play out, Paul is encouraging them with the words of Jesus this is called the second coming of Jesus. And I, as I told you earlier, what's interesting about the 66 books of the Bible, depending on what scholars you kind of read, uh, about 20%, maybe a fifth of Scripture is actually devoted to some form of prophecy, okay? Meaning kind of a foretelling. Even if it was instant or future, it was kind of in that light. And, we, and hopefully, you've been around here, especially at Christmas time, we, we look at prophecies about Jesus' birth, and we look at the prophecies of, of the coming of the Messiah. But depending on who you read, there is as many as, at minimum, five times as much prophecy about when he comes back again. There's some people say even more. As much as five times compared to that of the first coming 
of the Messiah. So scripture really does address this. It really does give us this hope to really look towards the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself would often say it, which is why Paul said, hey, I'm giving you exactly what I heard from the disciples and what disciples heard from Jesus over the many conversations that they had. They would address Jesus and say, Jesus, you keep talking about this, this thing, this kingdom. You keep talking about your rule and reign. You keep talking about your, you're going to be gone for a little while and then you're going to come back. When is that going to happen? Just curious, just like we would be. And here's a, a really cool passage. I don't know if you've ever read this and kind of skimmed past it, but this is where Jesus himself, it's actually known as kind of the little apocalypse, right? The little apocalypse, the, the, like a little mini revelation where Jesus gives his disciples at that time kind of an idea of what are things going to be like when I come back again? This is in Matthew. He says, Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives and his disciples came to him privately and then said, tell us when all this is going to happen, right? What sign uh, will signal your return and the end of the world? And Jesus said, look, don't let anybody mislead you. Many are going to come in my name claiming that I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. There was already people that had come and said they were the Messiah. You will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow that immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this, or sorry, but all this is only the first of the birth pains, right, with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you're my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will then appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of, of many or the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, and all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. If you skip down to verse 30, 36, he, he kind of tells them, look, no one actually knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. So even though Jesus sort of gave them this picture of like, well, here are some ways in which things, you know, signals and signs that you can have an idea of when the end will be. It's still not going to be, it's not, it's, not like, it's not like a roadmap, turn left here, you've arrived. Everybody with me? That's not going to happen. Even Jesus said that's not going to happen. But if you just look back at that list real quick, just look at that list, right? These eight things that Jesus says when the end is near. If you just look over this list and listen, depending on who you are, depending on how you view things going on in the world, you know, what are we, five for eight, seven for, what are we, eight for eight, you know? Like depending on how we see this, depending on how we, we interpret the, the division of churches and the division of Christianity, depending on how we interpret sin running rampant, because we've been doing it a long time, how do we interpret the, 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 you know, the, the wars upon wars that we've seen? How do we interpret the use of technology and the hyper-connectedness of our world in terms of how the gospel is going to reach every tribe and every tongue? Does that make sense? 
So I, I'll be honest with you. I can't take a guess. I mean, I, I, mean, I try to sometimes. But I, I don't know. This is what Jesus said. And we need to know that. Like, like, like we're not going to jump into Revelation without understanding why it was so important that John was given this vision from God to give to the church. Because even Jesus himself and, 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 the, and the early church, they, they, were under, they understood this. They were really paying attention to these signs, to these ideas. That we, Look, we can't nail it down. We can't put a, a stake in the ground as to when it's going to happen. But we're expectant. Maranatha. Right? The Lord is coming again. So why we're studying the book of Revelation is because we believe, just like we've read through, through those verses, we believe we've been given Scripture, the Word of God, to be able to help us encourage one another. Everybody say encourage one another. Encourage one another, okay? Not to fear monger, not to, not to puff up with, with knowledge, but to encourage one another about the fact that God is coming again. And, and, he, and, and this is where I'll share with you the actual word. Uh, go to the next slide. Yeah, the book of Revelation, if you go look, um, again, the, the actual Greek word they're used is apocalypse, okay? It is apocalypse, the apocalypse. Like, we use that word like with words like zombie, right? Zombie apocalypse. Like, we use, we use that word, but that's what revelation actually is in terms of that Greek word, apocalypse. And it really does just mean vision or revealing the book of Revelation was written by John, the apostle, the disciple. You guys know John. John wrote five you know, books and letters of the Bible. He wrote his account. He wrote um, the gospel of John. He wrote letters to the church. You see those towards the end, first, second, and third John. And then he wrote the book of Revelation. So, And, and we'll, we're going to read just a little bit here in a minute to Revelation. It'll give a lot of information as to about why John wrote this and, you know, the purpose of what God was doing. It was about 95 AD, they guess. He was on the Isle of Patmos. Again, just, just, just know that John was taking care of Jesus' mother. He's one of the few disciples that wasn't martyred, didn't die a martyr's death. Doesn't mean they didn't try to kill him. Some accounts talk about, I think it was Demetius. Is it Demetius? Yeah. Some accounts talk about him being boiled, trying to be, boil him alive, but he didn't die. Hello. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's, that's, that's a huge. But he didn't die. And, and they talk about this exile on this island of Patmos. Think about, just think about the rock. Like, you know, think about Alcatraz in, in our day and time. Like a, like a separated uh, from everything, an exiled island that they sort of use to kind of shove their waste and just little caves and so forth and so on that he would have been living in for a period of time on the Isle of Patmos. And, 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 and it's specific, and I'll read this in a minute, but it is specific to seven, seven churches, not solely to seven churches, but to uh, seven churches that he actually um, talks about. So let's read the beginning part. And then again, I want to kind of give you a little bit of an overview today of just, I, I believe, a healthy approach, a healthy perspective on how we can and should read this incredible book of Revelation. Let's read in Revelation 1.1. If you want to turn to your Bible, you can do that as well. It's always a good habit to do. I'm going to have it on the screen for those online as well. 
This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all those who listen, read and listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. Jump down to verse 9. He introduces himself. He says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering. Again, lots of persecution has been happening in the church. He said, I'm your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the, say the two words out loud, really important words. <laughs> Since he's getting ready to give them something that now we are reading 2,000 years later, <laughs> talk about patient endurance to which Jesus has called us, or he calls us. I was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. He wouldn't surrender to Caesar as, as God. Keep going. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. And he said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then later on he says, I want you to write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is, this is how this book starts. With John worshiping in the spirit, it was just him, you know. There was no church to attend on the Isle of Patmos. But he's worshiping God on the Lord's day. He says, send these to the seven churches. And I just want you to know, it was, it was never meant to be for only those seven churches. Next week, we're going to look specifically at the actual letters to the seven churches that are in addition to sort of the visions that, that Jesus gave John about the future. But we're going to address those. It was kind of strategic in nature. These seven churches in Asia Minor were strategic in nature, and, and, and God sort of had a plan that the majority of churches that were birthed at this time would have been able to get this information quickly from these kind of central hubs, these, these seven uh, churches. I don't want you to miss the beginning where he said it's a blessing for those who read it and listen. And I, I'm not sure about you, but I know people have kind of veered away from this or they've been nervous about reading Revelation because it, it gets weird. And listen, it's going to get weird. I just want you to know that. It is, okay? It's going gonna, it's gonna to have so much that is, that is based on interpretation. And here's one of the reasons that I've struggled with it for many years is because I hate reading about, uh, reading about things and then going to people way smarter than me and watching them argue about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't stand that. Dan and I talk about that. I can't stand that. So again, it goes back to a lot of this is based on interpretation. It's hard to even see the context of things that are going to happen in the future that we can't even really understand sometimes. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a blessing for us to read its words, to understand it, to be able to dive in and have a healthy understanding of what these visions were that John was given. 
And I will tell you this quickly, just for a technical, for those tech, technically minded in the room, he does specifically say, look, there's some things that are happening now, and there's some things that are going to happen. And actually, that's even broken up into two things. <laughs> things are going to happen now and in your kind of your near future, and then there's going to be things that are happening in the very distant future. And, it's, and they're known as the, uh, uh, oh gosh, the preterist view, uh, which is the stuff happening in the context of the church, the historic view, which is the idea that John was writing about things that were going to happen in, in his era, meaning he, it might not be right then, but it was in his near future. And then the futurist view, which is truly these end, end, end times. I don't know how many ends I have to add to make it end, end times as well. But the overall goal of these visions given to John is so that he would see Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus and the events that were going to take place, that are going to take place. And so, again, sometimes it's real clear as to the context of the, of the day, kind of clear about the end, end, end times, and sometimes even a little bit more clear about the things that would be happening within just the near future of John. But all of this was given to him in these visions. And my goal for you overall is just that you would have a healthy approach when you begin to read this, okay? This isn't our Read Your Bible series in the summer, but we really do want you to, on your own to begin to wake up every morning, pray, and begin to read this book on your own and ask God to speak to you. Ask God to reveal to you what it is he's saying in his word. We're going to do it as a church in, in big, big chunks and sections, but I don't want to take, it, take away from the fact that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in you in how you approach Revelation, how you're going to read it. And then again, we'll come together and try to answer questions together that, that really might be hard to understand. Here's my goal. I think the healthiest approach, based on everything that I've read and seen, is we read and study the revelation of Jesus and his eternal plans. Okay? The purpose of these visions, everything given to John, is to read and study revelations and, and to see Jesus and his eternal plans. Not, okay, not the revelation of us and our plans. Everybody with me? It's not necessarily, again, I think most of us approach Scripture sometimes with a what's in it for me attitude. Where, where am I in the, in the Bible story? Where am I in the application of this scripture? And, and this is one of those harder ones that, quite frankly, it doesn't mean you're not there. Trust me, you're there. We're going to get there, and you are there. But you're not supposed to go to this book and just to try to figure out, you know, when's stuff going to happen to me? Everybody with me? That's, I mean, I've struggled with this for years in terms of Revelation and end times study is that it's all man-centered. It's all, it's all humanistic. When's it going to happen and what's it going to mean to me? Okay, where's my crown's going to be? What kind of mansion am I going to get? You know, I don't know what car I'm going to be driving, but it better be nice. Everybody with me? There, there's a lot of revelation like, oh, I want to know where, what it says about me, and that's kind of all I'm worried about. When I was growing up in the Baptist church, I, I, I saw it more like, um, I saw it through the lens of just this escapism, Okay kind of this idea like, like, God, I'm so, I'm just woefully uh, worn out from the sorrow of this world. Oh, Maranatha, right? 
Jesus, come quick. And it was an escapism. It, was, it wasn't fueling people to live, you know, like there was no tomorrow. It wasn't fueling people to share the absolute hope of Jesus with people. It was just sort of this hunker down mentality so we can escape one day because God's going to come snag us. And then I also personally experienced this where people kind of read it with an interruption because you're young, right? You're young. You haven't really even experienced all the things you want to experience. You're young. I remember praying as a teenager in, in church, watching these crazy videos of the end times and reading books and, you know, just sort of the fear that would come. And I'd be like, oh, Jesus, please do not come back till I get married. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't want to miss out on some stuff. And because of how it was portrayed, it was sometimes an interruption. Does that make sense? And listen, guys, that's, that's not what eschatology is about. That's not what the end times is about. That's not what Revelation is here for. The book of Revelation isn't for you in terms of how to reveal things to you about you. It was the revelation of Jesus to us. The revelation of who Jesus is and his plans. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm telling you, when you begin to read this with a healthy approach, it should, I, I, hear, I hear me say the words, it should excite you. It should give you hope. Now there's some things, again, there's weird stuff. I mean, when you go back and look at Daniel's dreams and Ezekiel, and I mean, there's plenty of times in which, you know, people get afraid because of the uncertainty of the future. But God always seems to either send an angel to come along and be like, don't be afraid. Don't, don't. This is not given to bring fear in you. This is given for you to encourage one another and to give you hope. So I want to share just as we do this overview, I'm going to just share five, five sections of Revelation. You can even break this up in your reading if you want. But five sections of how Jesus is revealed in the book of Revelation that I believe encourages us and brings us hope. The first one, as you read chapters 1 uh, through 3, you're going to see Jesus revealed as the Alpha and the Omega, which is just the, the, the play on the terminology of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, the first letter, the last letter, like and I love the way this is phrased. Let's, let's go read uh, this portion in, 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 uh, in uh, Re uh, Revelation 1. We skipped over this part earlier, but it said, look, he comes in the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes and amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, this is John, I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of those lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool and white as snow. His eyes were flame, like flames of fire. 
His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mount or mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But then he laid his right hand on me and said, say the words out loud. Don't be afraid, John, for I am the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. He goes on to say, because, you know, again, John knew him, I am the living one. I'm not the, I'm not the dead one. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. I hold the keys of death and the grave. John, I'm, all, I'm, the, I'm, I'm who is, I'm who always was, I'm who will always will be. You know John's name? You know how John was referred to as a disciple? The one whom Jesus loved. You guys know, you know what I'm talking about? That's how John was described. We talk about the intimacy of a relationship like that. And yet, when Jesus is revealed in this moment to John, as the Alpha and the Omega in all of his glory, he falls to his face. And yet the, love, the loving heart of Jesus says, John, I'm still, I'm the living one. I'm the one you saw die, but I'm also now living, and I hold the keys to death and the grave. I am the authority over everything, just like I told you I was. There's encouragement. When we begin to read Revelation, and the way in which Jesus is revealed is that he is the Alpha and the Omega. You continue to read on, especially through the churches, and, and uh, there's a scene, there's a scene, he's known as the Lamb of God because there's a scene in which the end is coming, and we'll get there as we kind of look at the next few weeks, but the end is coming, and, and there's a, a moment by which uh, a scroll needs to be opened, but it is sealed because it was God's plan, and and they look, they, they, you know, John's seeing this vision and they're looking all over heaven. And I mean, I'm telling you, when you start looking, reading Revelation and you start looking at the power of some of these angels and archangels, like, like we're talking about more powerful than anything you could possibly imagine. And yet John says that there was no one who could open the seal. No one could open the scroll. And, and he wept. He actually had a reaction to it until he saw Jesus, until he saw Jesus as the Lamb of God. Let's go uh, read this portion. He says, I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Keep going, jump down to verse 9. And they sang this song, this new song, that you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you, or open it, for you were slaughtered. And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I know we just talked about this a few weeks ago, but you know, one of the reasons that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember one of the reasons we celebrate communion is so that we can remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid on your behalf and on my behalf, that they want to remember 
The fact that Jesus gave his life, his body was broken, his blood was shed. And, and they talk about, oftentimes they would use that, that illustration of the, of the sacrificial lamb that was slaughtered on behalf of the many. And what I get really excited about as I read this in Revelation is that, you know what? Heaven just can't get over the work that Jesus Christ did for you and for me. We get over it sometimes a little too fast. That's why we do communion, because sometimes we have to go back and remember that there was a price paid in blood for your freedom and for mine. That there was, that there was an act that had to take place to ransom God's people. And Jesus is the only one who paid that price. And according to this revelation, this vision, he, because of that act, he is the only one worthy to open the scroll. He is the only one in heaven. As, as God arranged it, he's the only one worthy because of his act to make the things happen that are going to have to happen. And, and I just want to challenge you, like part of reading Revelation should be in our hearts that, listen, <laughs> for whatever reason, heaven's still not getting over what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. Heaven's not over it. It's pretty, it's pretty celebrated. And it will continue to be celebrated for eternity. And we are the ones, the ransomed people of God, that will be able to be with him forever because of that. Third way that he has seen, and this is going to be take up a lion's share of, of what a lot of the things we'll read, is he's revealed as the righteous judge. It covers several, several chapters. But he's revealed as the righteous judge, the one who brings judgment. This is going to bring to mind, hopefully for you, every, every uh, uh, parable and every sermon that Jesus ever taught where he taught about the fact that, look, a master went away, and then when he came back, he held his servants in account. You guys with me? Every parable, every time he shared a story about how the king or the master would do something, and this is how it ended up, Revelation is going to show you and be a revelation to you about how it really is going to look. Because when he returns, part of how he's revealed is as the righteous judge. And I'm telling you, there's some, there's some going into some of the weird, there's so much judgment coming, guys. Matter of fact, there's three main sections. You can see it on the screen. We're not going to get into it too deep today, but in, um, in chapter six through eight, we're talking about the seal judgments, four riders of the apocalypse, the four horsemen, the, the, the moon turns blood red. There's tremendous bloodshed from war. About a quarter of the world dies from the famine and plagues and wild beasts. There's the trumpet judgments, which again, go in the next several chapters. We're talking about hail and fire and blood falling from the sky. There's poisonous locusts that attack. A third now, a third of the world is killed, vegetation destroyed, a third of the animals die, a third of the water is contaminated, and a third of all light is lost. I just, we can't even picture that. Then there are the bowl judgments, which continue to get even more severe, sores on people, the mark of the beast, uh, water turns to blood, everything dies, uh, sun scorches the earth, Her earthquakes hit, there's hailstorms that are recorded with a hundred pound 
hails, 100-pound stones, and it devastates everything. And the problem is many people who struggle to see God the way we sometimes see him struggle with reading sometimes Revelation because of how unjust it looks, like how unfair you know, that, that kind, these kind of judgments are going to seem. And, and yet, here's the way it's written as it's revealed on and on and on through Revelation. Go ahead and go to the next verse. He says, I heard the angel who had the authority over all the water said, you know what? You are just. He was talking about Jesus. Oh, holy one, who is and always was because you have sent these judgments. The angel's reminding us that and reminding John in the vision that, you know what? It is his justness that brings judgment. It is the fact that he is holy and just. That at the end, we're going to be accountable. It's just the way it is. You'll be accountable for everything you've been blessed with. You'll be accountable for every moment of your life. You'll be accountable for every thought and every motive. You'll be accountable for everything you did do. And trust me, you will be accountable for everything you didn't do. That's just the way it is. And it is a choice between life and death. It is a choice between Jesus and not. And, that, and because he's just, he's going to rule and, and cast and, and, and roll out justice. That, again, to the outside world, looking in there, just like, ah, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like a loving God. Well, I'm sorry, that's, that's because he's just. You know, you know when you see those verses that say he comes with a mighty shout? Right? He comes with a mighty shout. He comes with a trumpet blast. And one scholar was asked one time, um, what do you think is going to be shouted? You know, Because we have time on our hands. We think of dumb stuff like this. This is what humans do. right? Hey, what do you think it's going to be? Because it doesn't actually ever say. What's, what's the shout going to be? What's the phrase going to be? And this scholar just kind of thought for a little while, and I loved his response because he just sat there and he says, I don't know what it's going to be, but... Somehow in my heart, I think, I think it's going to just be the word enough. Enough. See, Peter tells us that Jesus and God the Father doesn't want anybody to suffer. That they're not slow returning. He's not slow in, in returning because he's like, you know, biz, too busy for us right now. He is patiently waiting, enduring, so that as many as possible can turn and experience absolute hope in Jesus. But at some point, just letting you know, at some point, he's going to say enough. Enough injustice, enough disease, enough cancer, enough pain, enough death, enough immorality, enough. And he's going to righteously judge. He's also revealed this way. He's revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's go to that verse. I saw heaven. Oh, whoo. Go back. Okay, there we go. All right. Saw heaven open, and the white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. And he, again, you're going to see it written often. He judges fairly, and he wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And a name was written on him that no one understood except for himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word 
of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged or sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod, and he will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe, at his thigh, was written the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords kind of like that, that Alpha and Omega, you know? It, sh- it, should just, it should just make you just take big, deep breaths, all right? Because listen, everybody, everybody sort of writes their own Jesus, okay? Everybody sort of has their own version of Jesus. There's hippie Jesus and, you know, loving Jesus and boyfriend Jesus and bodyguard Jesus, you know? Sometimes there's Gandhi-like Jesus and pride parade Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is just wearing a U.S. flag with an eagle in one hand and an A.A.R. in the other, you know. (laughs) But here's the deal. Jesus showed it to John, who he is. I mean, we try to write him into our own story. We write him into religions all the time. But he made it really clear who he is and who he's going to be and what he's coming back as. And I know that the first time he came, he came kind of in obscurity, born on the backside of nowhere, and came as a man to fulfill the mission of God, to pay the price for you and for me, to be that lamb of God. But when he comes again, he's coming in full galia. He's coming in full glory, all right? He is coming as the king of all kings, and he is coming as the Lord of all lords, and, and, and he doesn't care what you want to know. Like, I love, I, listen, there's so many times in Revelation, because this is how humans are, we want knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, doesn't it? Knowledge kind of puffs us up. I'd like to know. I'd like to know as much as possible. God, why don't you answer those questions? You know, he says he has a name that only he knows. Don't you know, isn't there a part of you that goes, well, I want to know what the name is. And you know what Jesus would say to you? Tough. Because you're not the Alpha and the Omega. You're not the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords. You don't get to know everything. And I love the fact that Revelation is all this beautiful stuff that will come eventually, and still there's a mystery to God that he goes, yeah, that's none of your business. It's a name that I know, and it's me. And guys, we are, I'm telling you, I don't know what it's going to be like. When when you see those words that everyone is going to see him, listen, don't don't get in your mind, this is, I don't know what it's going to look like when everyone sees him. It's not going to be like he's, you know, somewhere on the backside of a desert and we got to catch him on Instagram live. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not going to happen. I don't know what it looks like for the whole world at once to see Jesus, but it's going to be amazing (laughs) and sobering. Because he is the Alpha and the Omega, and he is the Lamb that was slain, and he is the righteous judge, and man, he's the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and that's the God we worship. And then lastly, he's the bridegroom. This is where you get to the end of the end of the story and this beautiful wedding feast and this beautiful, we're going to get there, guys, with this beautiful party, this wedding feast, this celebration with his people with his followers, with the saints. He's the bridegroom because we're the bride. That's how we are described in not only Revelation, but in in the New Testament, talking about how Jesus talks about his church. 
is the bride. Keep going. What's that uh, next scripture? This is in 21 verse 9. It says, one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the last plague that came said to him, look, come with me. I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He's telling this to John. And he goes over and he says, he took me in spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. And, and it goes on to explain the, the rolling streets and, the, and just the beautiful magnificence of this. And then John ends this by saying, look, I saw no temple in the city, right? There's no temple. There's no church service there. Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And the city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. I don't think you and I can comprehend the celebration that's going to happen. Is there a lot of hard-to-read stuff going to happen? especially in the judgment and the, and, the, and the war of Armageddon. Like, is there a lot of that stuff that's kind of hard to walk through? Yes. Especially when you and I consider the family members and friends who aren't saved yet. When you and I really take into consideration the people in our lives who do not know Jesus, and we read what is their fate, it's very hard to read. But as followers of Christ, guys, we, we do come in on the scene because he's the bridegroom and we are the bride. And there is the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a celebration and a feast and something beautiful that's going to happen that we get to be a part of and we will reign with him and be with him forever and ever. And I don't know what your vision of heaven is like. I think most of you guys thought it was going to be harps and baby butts and wings and, you know, singing all the time and you come in late anyway because you don't want to sing that much anyway like you're you know i know I, you know it's just there i'm telling you guys you do not understand the celebration of life when jesus makes everything new it's going to be beautiful and even those words are just not worthy enough to describe it so here's the encouragement that comes at the end of the book Again, this was just an overview today. Here's the encouragement that comes at the end of the book, and then I'll, I'll close this out. Here's the five ways that Jesus is revealed to us. Keep going. The spirit of the bride then said, come. Let anyone who hears this come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life. Just right before it ends, he just... There's continually that invitation, just like Jesus gave when he was here. Those who are weary and heavy laden, carrying burdens, I will give you rest. I give life freely. One of the more beautiful things about the revelation, and even in the end times, is just once again the grace of God at work, that people will still have an opportunity, even in that moment. And in, in, those, in those trials and in those plagues and in those judgments, they will still have an opportunity to come to Jesus. Even then. And then he ends the, the letter in the book this way. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Because that's how Jesus wants to end the revelation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, right? May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. I hope that you are excited about reading this book. I hope you're excited about the study that we're going to do. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ and the events and the plans that he has in store, um, it should excite you. I want you, again, we're going we're gonna to get in all the weird. We're going to get into a lot of the questions. We're going to get into things that, quite frankly, I'm going to give you some opinions on. I'm going to give you some different views on. And, and I won't be able to tell you which one is the right one. I, I'm going to walk you through some things that are, that are like, hey, here's, here's a whole bunch of smart people, and they all disagree on this. But God still has something to say, even in those things, for his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this book and for your word. God, I'm, I'm, I'm praying today that you would remove all apprehension and fear and concern and worry and anything people have ever heard about Revelation or heard about end times that has kind of kept them from diving into this book. God, I just pray by your Holy Spirit today that you'd get them excited, that you would you would help them see this revelation of you and, and that that would be something that fuels them this week as they get excited about reading your word and seeing you, seeing your plans and what we can learn, not just as a church, but individually what we can learn and, and walk away with in terms of application of how you've called us to live. Thank you, Jesus. I pray all this in your name. Amen.